All right, as I said before, it's, it's a treat for me to introduce you to Jimmy Carter. Jimmy is a neat young man who has uh, been with this church for a long time. We have watched him grow in, in many, many ways. He graduated from the University of Wyoming and went on to do his uh, graduate work at the West Institute here in Laramie, here at our local church, and graduated with Master of Arts in church ministry and, and continued to follow through with that. And, and knowing that God was calling him to more, he, he continued on with the Master's of Divinity degree, he completed that degree uh, at, with, at Shepherd's Theological Seminary at the same year that uh, his wife uh, finished and graduated with her Master of Arts. And so Jimmy has been a faithful teacher of God's Word. He, um, uh, without any shadow of a doubt, for me, this opportunity to have left and come back and watch where he has grown and come to the Bible Institute in the morning and watch Jimmy teach and just see how God has worked in his life has been really a, a, a neat thing for me to observe. And so with that, just want to welcome Jimmy to come up and, and minister God's word to us. Well, good morning, church. Uh, that's only half the story. I was thinking this whole week as I was preparing for this sermon, just what an honor it is to share God's word with you today. Uh, I've only been a member of this church for the last seven or eight years uh, since I did the West Institute, but this church and members of this church have been investing my life for the last 17 years. It started as an eighth grader at McCormick Junior High School in Cheyenne. Aaron Frood started the FCA there, and I was involved in FCA all through middle school high school, all through college. I had the opportunity to be poured into with the Word of God here through the West Institute, and I've had the chance to continue to grow, so it truly is special for both my wife and I. This is, this is a special day. Thank you guys for the ministry to us over the years, and I'm excited to share God's Word with you today. Uh, we will be in the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and as you do that, I'm going to pray for us and just pray for our time. Father, I thank you for today. Lord, thank you for the chance to gather together as the saints here in Laramie. Lord, I thank you for your word that you've given us. Lord, that we can know who you are, or we can know who we are. Lord, I pray for us as we look at this passage in Ephesians 1, as we look at the riches of the identity of the gospel. Lord, I pray for any who are here that don't know you, that as we look at this list, it would be convicting, Lord, that they are missing out on so much. And Lord, for those who are here who know you, who love you, I pray this would be a reminder of all we have in the gospel and how that should impact our lives daily, Lord. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin, I have a, just a, a quick story, uh, a brief introduction. In the early 1900s, the Russian jeweler F Peter Fabergé, he produced this set of miniature sculptures for Tsar Nicholas II. Now, Fabergé had made himself a name. He invented these little eggs, these Easter eggs, that are just immaculate, immaculately made, gold all over, silver all over. They're still on display in many places around the world. Well, Nicholas thought he would like to have Fabergé produce these little statues, little seven-inch statues, to be given as gifts to the royal family. And we know at least 50 of these were produced because we still have 50 of them. And they produced things that were, they were just common things. Fabergé made statues of peasants, statues of servants, statues of gypsies and street sweepers, even two of the imperial bodyguards he made these little statues of. They were made of gold and silver, precious metals, all these things. Well, one of the statues of the, the guardsmen, the bodyguards of the emperors, has been on display in St. Petersburg 
for many, many years. The other one was assumed lost. From 1934 on, no one had ever seen where this other bodyguard statue ended up. That was until 2013. The Davis family of Rhinebeck, New York, I don't think they have any relation to our Davis family, they might, but they were searching through the attic of a deceased relative when they found a little box. Now this little box didn't have anything special about it, but as they opened it up, they were surprised to see a perfect little figurine inside. Not only was this a perfect little figurine, it had diamonds all over it, it had gold over it, it was a tiny little Russian soldier. Well, they wondered what in the world could this thing be? They took it to an auction house who had it appraised, had it evaluated, and sure enough, this was the long-lost Fabergé bodyguard. Okay, well, you can imagine these things show up all the time. Imposters are trying to make these. Uh, replicas are made all the time, but this one was authentic. And not only was it authentic, it had tremendous value. The auction house that they took it to estimated that if they took it to auction, it would bring bare minimum a half million dollars, maybe up to $800,000. Well, what had started as a, just a little attic cleanup turned into an amazing treasure find and potentially a life-changing haul of riches. Well, as I read through this story, three things come to mind. First, your afternoon assignment is to go home and look through your attic. <laughs> Who knows what might be up there? And in reality, though, really what I thought was, first of all, the same family owned this amazing treasure for 80 years. At some point, someone forgot what they had. How else do you explain this thing sitting just overhead in the attic space for over eight decades? Someone forgot what they had. And second, on the serious points at least, the treasure had an amazing value. Now, I don't know anything about the family. I don't know anything about the deceased relative. But surely a half million dollars could have made quite an impact in their life. But because they failed to realize the treasure they had, they failed to get to enjoy the riches that that treasure was worth. Well, today we're in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul wrote this letter from Rome. If you're looking at your text, give me just one sec, we're going to introduce the book of Ephesians. Well, Paul is sitting in Rome, he's in a Roman jail, 1,200 miles away from Ephesus. And he's writing to a church that he loves. This is a church he had invested years of his life in, and it's a church that he had just heard may be facing serious trouble. Someone had come all the way over from that region to say, trouble is afoot. There are people coming in who are leading people away from the gospel. They're telling people, you can walk in Christ and live however you want, live whatever sin you want. You can pursue all these other false religious things and still be secure in your relationship with the Lord. And Paul, he has no ability to go to them. He's in jail. He can't call. He can't FaceTime them. He gets one letter that's going to be sent by a messenger 1,200 miles to try to beg these people in Ephesus, don't walk away from the gospel. Stand in what you have in Christ. I'd ask you, if you're here this morning, if you have a friend, if you had a relative who's maybe facing something similar, I've had that, people who are tempted maybe by the allure of sin to walk away from the gospel, people who maybe the trials of life are just so heavy, they're ready just to throw in the towel and give up, maybe you've had friends who have turned to false religion or to legalism in an attempt to earn their own maturity, what would you say to them? What would you encourage them with? Well, Paul's answer is found in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. In this section, which is one long run-on sentence in the Greek, it's over 200 words in the original, and some commentators have called this the most cumbersome, cumbersome Greek sentence ever written. In this one long sentence, Paul lays for them seven riches that describe their identity. Seven riches that lay out what is it to be in Christ. 
He will start with before the foundation of the earth. That's where the identity starts, and it will extend all the way into all of eternity. He will talk about the involvement of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as he lays out these incredible riches that have been given to the saints in Ephesus. Now, my original plan was to preach through this whole passage in one week. I figured it's one sentence. That's how Paul would want it done. And I got just a little bit into it, and I thought, there's no way. And so Paul has graciously given me two weeks. So this morning, we're going to look at the first half of this. And in this half, he's going to address topics like election, the purpose of life, adoption, redemption. I love how one commentator summed up this passage. He said, it's like Paul was ecstatically opening a treasure chest, lifting the jewels with his hands, letting them cascade through his fingers, and marveling briefly at each of them as they catch his eye. That's what this, this chapter is. That's what this sentence is. Well, we've got to ask the question before we get into the text, why is Paul so focused on these treasures? Why is he fo- so focused on these seven riches? I think the answer is this. He is desperate that the church in Ephesus know their identity. They have to understand what it is to be in Christ. Not only do they need to know intellectually their identity, they must work to remember that daily. Constantly, they have to remember what they've been made in Christ. And then you get chapters 4, 5, and 6 of of Ephesians, which say you should live a life in response. Everything, all these riches drive us, they motivate us to a life that is set aside to, to the Lord. So if you're here today, if you're a Christian, these riches, they're yours. Just like they were the church, they belong to the church in Ephesus. But as we talked last week in Psalm 8, we live in the midst of a culture that has no idea where to find our identity. And if we're not careful, we'll get sucked along into all the other things the world says our identity should be found in. Things like relationships, things like respect and comfort, money and security, bigger houses with bigger cars and our bigger garages. We long for recognition and praise for our parenting, for our titles at work, for our physical appearance, for our abilities, for our kids. The list goes on and on and on. And saints, we must remember, just like the church in Ephesus, who we are is not what the world sees. If you are in Christ, your identity is what Christ has made you. So let's turn to the text. We'll begin with verses 3 through 4 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We'll stop there. We'll take verse 3 first. Verse 3, I believe, is an overview of this whole section. It is, it explodes with praise. He begins, blessed be the God and the Father. This whole thing, time and time again, as we go through each of these riches, Paul will remind the church in Ephesus, this should all lead to praise. It'd be easy to read this list, all that God has done for us, and think, man, I must be something special. Paul will not have any of that. He starts out like an Old Testament hymn saying, praise be to God. If you look down to verse 14 where this long sentence ends, the whole thing ends with praise be to his glory. It's all about God's glory. It's all about singing praise to him. And as he he contemplates all the riches, or as he says there at the second half of verse 3, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places which have been poured out on us in Christ, the only thing Paul can do is say, we ought to praise God. Praise God for his mercy. Praise God for his grace. He will come back to this theme time and time again as we go through these 11 verses. Well, the other thing to note in verse 3 is where all these blessings come from. All these spiritual blessings, all these heavenly blessings, which he's going to spend the rest of this sentence describing. He says these all come at the end of verse 3 
in Christ. Those two little words are so important. What he's saying is this. Every blessing you have as a Christian comes from being in Christ. It's all made available. It all points back to the gospel. It all points back to the cross. Every blessing you have is because you are in him. And therefore, as we read through this whole list, if you're here today and you're in Christ, if you are saved, if you have given your life to him, if you have applied his blood to your account, every one of these riches we look at belongs to you. You may not know it. You may not understand what you got when you signed up for the gospel, but these are yours. You need to understand those. And on the other side, if you're here today and you are not in Christ, none of this applies to you. You cannot have the Father without having the Son. It's completely impossible. Well, what are these riches? Let's finally look at the first one in verse 4. Here we see the first treasure, the first rich, or the, the first riches. That doesn't make sense. The first treasure, we'll go with that. Chosen. Okay, chosen. He says in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, those first two words of verse 4, as I was studying this, they really caught my attention. In fact, I probably spent more time wrestling with the phrase, just as, than any other part of this whole section, which may not make any sense, but I was thinking, what is Paul doing here? Why does he say, just as? What's he trying to prove? If he was just listing off the riches, he could just say, well, number one, you have been chosen. That's not what he says. It's a good translation, just as. I think he's wrestling through the same thing here that David was wrestling through in Psalm 8 last week. Remember, David prayed in Psalm 8 in verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? I think what Paul is wrestling with here is why in the world would God so abundantly bless people like us? People like Paul, who is the chief of sinners by his own testimony. Well, his answer to this question is found in that one key word, chosen. He says, God poured out all these blessings on you because it's perfectly in keeping with his character. And that character was first displayed in this fact. He chose you. He chose you not because of anything you did, not because of anything you would be or would do. No, in his grace, his unmerited, uh, his unmerited grace, I'm sorry, you earned unmerited favor because of his grace. That's what I'm trying to say there. In fact, in verses 3 through 14, Paul will use 10 different Greek words to emphasize God's sovereignty in this whole thing. Well, you get to the end of all that, he is not here trying to lay out how exactly does election work. Go to the book of Romans for that. Okay? He's not trying to describe who and what and how this all works. He simply says, this is all of God's grace. You get no glory for this but it is perfectly in keeping with God's character that he would continue to bless, continue to pour out the riches, because it all started in this fact. He chose you. And when did he choose you? You might be tempted to think, well, man, I was something. I was really good. I reached out to him, and then he chose me. No, look what he says there in verse 4. He gives you the time. He says, before the foundation of the world. Now, this is pre-Genesis 1. I think he's emphasizing that. But what he's emphasizing even more is that before you were created before your parents were created, before your grandparents, trace it as far back as Adam and Eve, and even before that, God set his affection on you. God chose you, and if you are here today and you are in Christ, you can confidently say, the only reason I am saved is because the God of the universe chose me. He picked me, he saved me. That ought to drive us to praise. That ought to drive us, as Paul says, to echo him and say, blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father. 
Now, briefly, I'm not going to spend any time on this because, like I said, I don't think this is Paul's main point. But if we talk about the concept of God's choosing, God's election, we have to say, okay, what about free will? What about free will? Well, in Scripture, we have both of them taught, and we have both of them time and time again so clearly. We have passages like this that make it absolutely clear that you have no pride in your salvation. You simply say, man, God chose me. God picked me. Nothing I did to earn it. God saved me, and anyone who gets saved gets saved because God chose them before the foundation of the world. And yet Scripture is clear time and time again. There is a genuine call to all of humanity to respond to the gospel. It is made available to all. Those two things may seem like they oppose one another. That's because we have teeny little human brains, and the God of the universe is not like us. This is something that is far beyond what I can articulate, something beyond what I can fully comprehend, but is so clear in Scripture. And Paul's emphasis here as we consider our identity with the word chosen is that the basis of your identity doesn't come from anything you have done, anything you are now doing, or anything you will do in the future. Your identity is rooted in the reality that God chose you. He chose you. He picked you. Sometimes you'll look at the difficulties of life and say, man, is God still in control? Could a God still be in control when this is going on in my life? Or maybe you'll look at yourself and wonder, how can God continue to love and save a sinner like me? Well, saints, we need to rest in this. If we're a Christian, God chose you individually on purpose before creation. And he's sovereign enough that he brought you to the place of choosing him. You are sitting here today saved because of his sovereignty. And his love, his choosing has nothing to do with you, but everything to do with his glory and grace. We are chosen. Well, the second treasure we see in the second half of verse 4, look back in Ephesians 1, if you will. He says, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Well, if the first treasure explains why God would lavish on us all these amazing blessings, I think the second one describes what our response should be. As we look at God's amazing grace, what is our goal in life? What is our purpose in life? What is the aim now? Well, here Paul lays this out in his three really simple words, but three words that change every aspect of life. He says, God saved you to be holy, blameless, and to do all this in love. Well, let's take the first two as one, holy and blameless. Paul uses these words elsewhere in the New Testament. In fact, if you turn over, you can if you want, Ephesians chapter 5, just turn a couple pages. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 as Paul is laying out the reality of marriage, the reality of what husbands and wives ought to do, he gives Christ as the ultimate example. And in Ephesians 5.25, he says, okay, why did Christ lay down, or maybe better, what did Christ accomplish in laying down his life for the church? Well, his answer in 5.25 is that he may present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be, here's our two words again, holy and blameless. We have the same thing in Colossians chapter 1, for a time you don't need to turn there, but Colossians 1.22, Paul also wrote, He is now reconciled to you in, the flesh, in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless. Well, in those two verses, we have the reality that God, or that Christ will present you before the Father holy and blameless. That has nothing to do with you. That's his work. That's what he has done. That's what his work on the cross accomplished. But here in verse 4 of chapter 1, I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. And now he's going to reference later what you have been made eternally. But what he's talking about here in verse 4 is what you are to be now. What should define your life? Well, it should be holiness. 
Holiness is a word that means to be set apart. It's used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament to describe things that were unlike anything else. So the seventh day of creation was set holy. It was set apart from the other six. Moses at the burning bush was told, you are on holy ground. Okay, it, was, it was ground that was unlike any other ground because God had touched it. And to be blameless means to be without defect. In Leviticus, it's used 23 times to describe the different sacrifices. God didn't want the junk. He didn't want the crippled animal. He wanted the perfect one, the blameless one, and that came to mean morally pure as well. So as we live lives here, we are purposed to have an identity that's rooted in holiness and blamelessness. Holiness and blamelessness, but it's important that we include the last little part of this section, and you'll notice, depending on what translation you have, they do different things with the end of verse 4. This is one of the downfalls of having a 200-word Greek sentence is the English sometimes struggles a little bit to know, okay, what goes where? But as I read the different commentaries, most of them agreed, the phrase in love goes at the end of what we just read. So you are to be holy and blameless in love. Well, what's Paul saying here? He's saying that your actions need to be motivated by love. We are not called just to be keepers of the rule, to say, well, this is what right is, this is holiness, this is blamelessness, I need to jump this high and just do it of my own accord. No, he says, you pursue holiness in your life, you pursue blamelessness in your life, grounded and rooted in love. Grounded and rooted in love. And here I think Paul gives us a pretty important principle. Your lack of holiness and blamelessness, my lack of holiness and blamelessness in my life, or to say it another way, your sin problem is chiefly a love problem. It's chiefly a love problem. It is the love for Christ, it is the love for God, and it is the love for our brethren that ought to motivate the holiness. It ought to motivate the blamelessness. For an example, just think of it like this. You can't claim, you can't tell all your friends you love your spouse while the whole time you run around and commit adultery behind their backs. It's the same thing here. If you claim Christ, you claim you love Christ, your actions are going to be consistent with this. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. That's not a threat. He's not saying the way you can judge your love is by looking at the commands and how will you do that, although that is a result of that. What he's saying is if you have a genuine love for me, if you desire to be like me, if you desire to give your life to me as I'm giving my life for you, you're going to keep my commands. The natural result will be obedience. And so as we come to love our Savior more and more, our desires will more and more to be pleasing to the Lord. They'll be pleasing to the Lord. And so our sin problem is chiefly a love problem. And as we strive to live lives that are pleasing to him, our motivation is that we love him. We love him. What kind of God would pour out this kind of riches on completely unworthy sinners like us? Well, Paul is not calling us to earn our own holiness here or to earn our own righteousness or anything. No, I think what he's saying is this. You have been made holy by the work of Christ. Live like it. You have been made blameless by the spotless lamb. Stand in his blood and do it all motivated by love. Well, so far we've had two treasures of identity. We've looked at the reality that we are chosen before the foundation of the world and also the fact that we have been given purpose. We have been purposed for this life. Well, in verses 5 and 6, we see the third treasure. This treasure is adopted. I'll read verse 5 and 6. Five and six. He says in verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, 
which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, as we start this, we won't make much of it, but notice right away in verse one, or in the start of verse five, there's another reference to God's sovereignty in this whole thing. God predestined this. He set this before the foundation of the world. What was his goal? What was he going to accomplish? Well, here he says he predestined us to adoption. Well, let's spend a little bit of time talking about adoption. I think most of us are familiar with the American concept of adoption, but Roman adoption is actually pretty different, and it's important that we understand what the early church would have thought of when they thought of adoption so that we can rightly understand what Paul was saying here. A good example of this is seen about one generation before the days of the New Testament. There was a young man born, his name was Gaius Octavius Therunius. I think Therunius, I rehearsed that several times, I still don't know how to say that part. But he was born about one century before Christ into a pretty well-off Roman family. His father died when he was young, though. And so his grandma took him under his wings, or took him, took him under her wings. And she brought two things to young Gaius. First, grandmotherly love. She did a lot of the raising of young Gaius. But second, the, the second thing she brought to him was lineage. You see, her brother was none other than Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, emperor of the Roman world. This made Gaius the great-nephew of Julius Caesar. Well, Gaius succeeded as a young man. He even got to go help Julius plan some activities in Rome at one point. And he went off when it was time to one of the best military schools in the world. He was going to be a commander. He was going to be a leader of the army. He was at this school when he received news that his great-uncle, I think that's what the connection would be, Julius Caesar had been assassinated in Rome. And he was advised by all those closest to him, flee for your life. If they came for him, they'll come for you. Well, instead of doing that, he went to Rome. He said, nope, I'm going to go back to Rome. I'm going to see if there's anything I could do. Well, you can imagine his shock and the shock of the world when he got back to Rome and they discovered in the will of Julius Caesar that this young man had been adopted as the son of Julius. No one knew about this until the will was discovered. Well, being adopted as son of Julius Caesar meant two things for young Gaius. First, he inherited two-thirds of Julius's massive fortune. And even more important than that, he inherited the right to the throne. Now, he had to fight for it, and when the dust all settled, he ended up being one of the most effective and efficient Roman Roman emperors in all of history. And you know his name, his adopted name, his full legal name, Caesar Augustus. And when it came time for him to die and to pass on the kingdom to the next one, it was his adopted son, Tiberius, who took the throne. And this is actually really in keeping, it it demonstrates well what Roman adoption looked like in the first century. You think of, and I think of, when we think of adopting as adopting a child. In the Roman world, you didn't do that. You adopted an adult. And it was usually someone who was well off, they had a fortune to pass along, or position to pass along, but they had no male heir. And so they would pick someone. This could be a slave, it could be a family member, it could be a complete stranger, but they would pick this person and legally adopt them. And when you legally adopted someone in the Roman world, it brought an awful lot of weight to it. Your old personality was completely lost. Your name was lost. You had the new name. You were called to be dead to your family, and you were now just of the family that had adopted you. Not only that, all of the debts that you may have accumulated up to that point, they were forgiven because you were a new person. They can't pull debts out of you anymore if you're a new person. And even more than that, you became a full son. You had full rights, full inheritance as any normal-born son. Well, think of what Paul is saying here then. As he says, you have been adopted. You were predestined to adoption. He's going to go on to Ephesians chapter 2 
to say you were not naturally born sons, especially if you're Gentiles, like most of us are, you didn't have part of this. You weren't naturally born sons. In fact, in Ephesians 2, he will call you sons of disobedience and children of wrath. That's what we were before salvation. But we have been adopted by the king of the universe. You had a list of sins, Colossians chapter 2 says, that stood before God as a record of all your sins. You owed God a debt of sin. And yet, Colossians 2 says, that debt of sin was taken away and nailed to the cross. Your debts are forgiven. And not only that, you have been adopted eternally as a son, as a full heir of the Father, of the King of Kings. What an amazing thing it is. And I think we've got to ask the question, why would God do something like this for his enemy? Well, Paul answers this, if you look back in verse 5, he says this flows from his loving, kind character. He goes on, he says, according to the kind intentions of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. I think what he's saying is, is this, this love, this adoption, this is perfectly in line with God's gracious character. This is who our God is. This is who our God is. He is so loving, so forgiving. The fact that he adopts us and pours out all these riches, even on enemy slaves, should not surprise us because it is consistent with God's character. And I think what this means for us practically on the identity level, our praise should overflow from having a heart that understands who God is, but not just who God is, what God has given us. He has made us sons of the king. Sons of the king, what an amazing God we have. Well, the final treasure we'll look at is in verse 7 and 8. Here we see one final treasure redeemed. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished, lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 6, if you look back up at it, it ended with a statement that God's gracious character or that God's grace was given through the beloved. The beloved he's speaking about there is none other than Christ himself. Here in verse 7, he starts to look at what was the work of Christ then? What did Christ do? How did he make this available to us? And he uses one word, redemption. Well, that word you could, could define it as to release, to set free, to liberate, to buy back a slave, or to free a captive. In the Old Testament, the idea is often used with the slaves, uh, the, the Israelites when they were slaves of Egypt, and God liberated them, he redeemed them, he pulled them out of slavery and led them off to their own land. Well, you may ask the question here, what were we slaves to then? If this word by nature implies a slavery or an imprisonment, what were we slaves to before the gospel? Well, Jesus answered that for us in John 8. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So before our salvation, and if you're here today and you're not in Christ, the reality is you're a slave to your sin. You're a slave to wickedness. And since you're a slave to sin and you belong to sin, and since the just payment for sin is death, your future, if you're not in Christ, and our future, if we were not in Christ, if it wasn't for his grace, would be eternity in hell. Eternity separated from him, eternity in the fires of hell. But in responding to the gospel, in responding to the free offer of Christ, you were freed from your slavery. And I think it's important to point out here, Paul, when he says that you have redemption, this is not just a future thing. This is not a future tense verb that he uses. This is the present tense verb. Right now, right here, you have been freed. You have been redeemed. 
You have been released from your bondage to sin, and as we'll see in a minute, you are called to be slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness. Well, how did this come? How were you redeemed? He answers the question with these three words, three loaded words. He says, through his blood, through his blood. And those three little words, I think Paul captures the full drama, the full agony of the cross. See, you weren't redeemed by some good man that just lived a good life and then snuck off and went home. No, you were redeemed by the blood of the God of the universe. You were not redeemed by your own good works. You could never stand before God in your own good deeds. No, it must be his blood. His blood and his alone. You are redeemed, and then he goes on to describe it. He says, in him you have the forgiveness of your trespasses. All your guilt, all your shame, all that stood opposed to you between you and the Father has been forgiven. Forgiven by the blood of Christ. And then he explodes in verse 8. He says, and this is according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. The riches here, it could refer to the high point of a scale, the tipping point, you've maxed the thing out. And what he's saying here is God possesses all the riches of the world. He has all the treasures, and he has poured them out. He has lavished them upon us according to his riches in all wisdom and all insight. What an amazing God. What an amazing God. He has poured out just incredible blessings on us. Well, we begin today with the story of the lost Fabergé figurine up in the New York attic. One thing I forgot to include, well, I didn't really forget. I meant to save it for here. But when they first found this little thing in the attic, they actually noted, the family members noted later, that the box, there was nothing special at all about the box. Actually, in their own words, they said this was a plain and ordinary box. And nothing special. It was what was inside that made it special. It gave it value. And it gave it an awful lot of value. I told you the original estimate on what the thing would fetch was between a half million dollars and $800,000. When it actually went to auction, 15 minutes of auction, it just went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And the dust settled. A London-based jeweler was the proud new owner of this long-lost figurine. The sticker price, $5.2 million. In total, they paid almost $6 million dollars to own this little lost piece of history. Now, I have no idea what the financial status of that deceased owner was who had that thing right above their attic all the time, but $5.2 million probably would have been nice to have. Okay, but because they failed to realize what they had, they failed to understand the treasure they had, they failed to remember it, they failed to pass this on, they had to fail, <laughs> they got to fail, they didn't get to live in the riches that they possessed. It was theirs the whole time but they didn't get to enjoy it at all. And as Christians, we must work to realize what we've been given in the gospel. Today we've looked at the first four of seven amazing treasures that the apostle lays out in the book of Ephesians. We are not special because of anything on the outside. We are special because of what God has done for us, what he has made us. We have eternal riches and eternal identity. We have been chosen before the foundation of the world. We have been purposed to live a life of holiness based in love. We've been adopted by the King of Kings and we have been redeemed, purchased through the blood of Christ. I'll end with this, and this is how Paul ended this section too. Look down in Ephesians chapter one, verse 18, as he sums up all that he's laid out in these riches. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you will know the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glory and his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe? 
Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the riches that you have bestowed on us. Father, we are not worthy. Lord, that's what makes us so amazing, is we are not worthy at all of any of this. But Lord, you have graciously given it to us. Lord, you are rich. Lord, you own it all. And Lord, you have lavished upon us your riches. Lord, I pray that as we live our lives, Lord, that the reality of our identity would make a difference. Lord, it would make a difference in what we do, what we say, what we think. Lord, the lives we choose, the paths we follow. Lord, we are sons of the King, and we thank you for that. And Father, I pray for any who are here that don't know you, Lord, that they would call out to you for salvation, Lord. Lord, you have made it available to all who would call upon you. Lord, these riches are available. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.